you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 13. We're in Matthew chapter 13 as we spend this summer looking at parables of Jesus. Parables are uh, stories that Jesus told, and we're going to look at several of those this summer. Uh, and Jesus, in these parables, deals with some profound spiritual truths, but he does his teaching in a very simple way, using things from everyday life uh, to illustrate some profound spiritual truths. And today, as we get to Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, in the parable of the weeds, he deals with many questions, but the one we're going to look at today is the question, if God is good, then why is there bad stuff in the world? One of the characters will ask, if you sowed good seed, then why are these weeds here in the field? And you may recall, if you've been with us for a while, that I was looking back at our podcast, I actually preached this parable on October the 3rd of last year. You can go back in the But First series, But First Gathered the Weeds, totally different sermon. We talked about what does a hell and brimfire sermon sound like from Jesus. We talked about that on October the 3rd. But today we're going to be looking at the parable from a different standpoint, from the standpoint of if God is good, then why is there evil and suffering and bad things in our world? And so if you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word, beginning in Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 24. Hear now God's Word. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then Jesus just stopped. And then he taught another parable about the kingdom in verse 31, and another parable about the kingdom in verse 33. And that's all Jesus says to these crowds that are following him. And later, some disciples of Jesus, people who have committed to follow him, were thinking about this parable. It got stuck in their mind because he told several but they come to him and they ask about this one. And that's one of the things I love about parables is that they do that to you, right? Sometimes just way later you're continuing to think about them and process them and, and, and what does that mean? And, and, and we see here that the right thing to do is to go and ask Jesus what they mean. And that's what we're going to see the disciples do here in just a second. We'll read that. But before I do, I just wanted to point out, isn't that good? that we can just go to Jesus and ask, what does this mean? Can you explain this to me? Because one of the purposes of the parables is that we would linger with Jesus. 
that we would sit at his feet, that we would ask him to teach us. In these first few parables we've been looking at, Jesus gives the interpretation of the parable. Now, by the time we get to next week, we're just going to be looking at parables without the interpretation of Jesus. And we're going to have to do some work, and we're going to have to think, and we're going to have to linger with Jesus and ask and seek and knock. But I just wanted to make that point, that we can go to Jesus and ask him, You know, the Christian faith, when they come to him, Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, don't ask questions, just believe what I say. Watch how Jesus responds when they come to him. He invites us to ask questions. He encourages us to ask and to seek and to knock and to linger with him, to let him teach us. So if you look down in verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So he's already left the crowds. He's gone back home. Uh, Maybe he's getting something to eat. And the disciples, those who have committed to follow him, come and say, would you explain to us this parable? Verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you send your spirit now and open our hearts and our minds and our ears so that we can be those who hear your word, that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would make a difference in our lives. Please come and do that now, and I pray that you'd be willing to do that even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Obviously, there's a lot going on in this parable. If we just looked at it not even a year ago, and so maybe if there's some things I don't talk about today, go back and listen to the podcast. Maybe your question uh, will be picked up there, or I would love to talk about these things with you. But today, as we're beginning this series on parables, I just want to talk about how Jesus teaches, because we see some things about how he teaches here, and then what Jesus teaches. So let's just look at those two things together and spend some time doing that. First, how Jesus teaches. Do you notice, first of all, that Jesus gives us the question, right? It's right there in verse 27. It says, And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Now, remember, this is not a historical event. This is a story that Jesus is telling to illustrate truths in the world. And so Jesus created this character who asks the question, Hey, you sowed good seed. Why is there bad stuff here in this field? So we see that Jesus is the one who raises this question. 
And and that's an important thing to point out because it shows us that Jesus is not scared of our questions. (laughs) Jesus is not running from our questions. Maybe you have felt like people in the church have done that before. You feel like other people have tried to shut you down. Listen, Jesus raised this question and he asked it. He said, if the kingdom of God is here, then why are all these bad things? I would imagine the people who are following him, these crowds, maybe they're Jewish folks and they're thinking, if the kingdom of God is really here, because that's what he's been talking about in Matthew 13, then why does the Roman Empire still rule over us? Why do I still see people crucified on Roman crosses by the side of the road? Why do I still struggle to feed my family if the kingdom of God is here, if it is invading this world? Perhaps the people following Jesus had those kinds of questions, and he just raises that question and then deals with it here in the text. We ask those kinds of questions too, don't we? If Jesus has come, if he's making all things right, if the kingdom of God is is born in my heart, why am I still struggling with sin? Why is the world so broken and messed up? Why do I see all these horrible things I see on the news? We ask these kinds of questions. And I just want you to see that Jesus is not afraid of the hardest questions. He brings them up himself. He invites us to ask him. This was not a new question of the day. And so I just want you to to feel that, how Jesus teaches, that Jesus brings up the questions himself. Moms and dads, as you do life with your children, they're going to ask you questions you don't know the answer to. And if you're anything like me, they're going to ask you questions that you're actually kind of afraid of. Like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm ready to talk about this. I don't know how we're going to deal with this one. But I think it's important for you to know and for you to say to your children, Jesus is not afraid of your questions. He encourages us to ask questions, and he wants you to bring your questions to him and to sit with him and linger with him and allow you to teach him. And I think it's so interesting, number one, Jesus gives us the question. He raises the question. And number two, I think it's interesting what he does in response to the question. He tells a story. That's a much more Eastern response. You know, here in the West, as people with Western thinkers, this is not the way we typically would deal with truth by telling a story, right? It's much, you know, we like syllogism, you know, where you have these premises and it leads to a conclusion. And there were people like that in this day. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher who lived 300 years before Christ. And he's the earliest one that I can see in the literature who first made the argument that Jesus is dealing with. 300 years before Christ, he's the one that said, look, if there is evil in the world and we see that there is, then these things, one of these things has to be true. He says, if God is willing to get rid of evil, He wants to do it, but he can't. Then he really is not powerful like a God should be. And if he is able to do that, but he just won't do it, then he must not be a very good God. If he's not willing or if he's not able, 
And then he said, because there is the presence of evil and suffering in the world, then that must mean there's not a God, not one that's good, not one that's all-powerful, not one that controls all things and wants what is good. And so he's the first to make this argument that the presence of evil means the absence of God. That's fascinating to me. I don't know if it is to you. Because people are still asking that question. And that's one of the biggest objections to the Christian faith is that I see these evil things in the world, so there can't be a good God that's in control of all things. We continue to wrestle with that question. And I love what Jesus does here. He, he hears that argument of the day. That's the temptation of our hearts, that things are not going the way that I would want them to go, so there must not be a God who is good, who is in control of all things. The presence of these difficult things just must mean that there's not a God like that. And I want you to know, Jesus does not agree with that. He doesn't agree. And he tells this story. And he asks us, he says, look at a field. Have you ever noticed in a field that there can be weeds in the field and wheat in the field? There can be something that is good to eat and then something that just needs to be taken up and thrown away. That Both of those things can exist at the same time. And Jesus is pointing out, we don't say that the presence of weeds in a field means that there cannot be wheat that exists in the field. Because when we look at the real world and we think about the reality of the way things are, we realize that the real world is more complex than that, that there can be multiple things going on at a time. What a way to make a point. That's true, isn't it? I go out to my yard and I look at my yard and I, and I see weeds. But the presence of weeds does not mean that I have no grass at all in my yard, right? The real world is more complex than that. There are multiple things. I've got weeds and grass. Or we look at our families. And we see in our families the presence of bad stuff. But that doesn't mean that there's no good stuff in our family at all. That's too simplistic of a view, right? The real world is more complex than that. There are multiple things going on in our family. Companies, we look at different companies around us and think that, don't we? That just because there's bad stuff anywhere in a company, does that make us think then there can't be any good stuff anywhere in the company? We don't think that way. We realize intuitively as we look at the world that the world is more complicated than that, that there can be multiple things going on at a time. Closer to home, think about your life. There are things that you don't like about yourself. There are things that are not good about you. But just because that is there doesn't mean that there's not the presence of anything good in you at all. We just don't have this all-or-nothing thinking anywhere else in our life. We seem to realize the real world is more complex, that there can be multiple things going on. But for some reason, even though we don't think this way in any other sphere of life, we seem to think this way when it comes to God and to evil. But to say, if evil exists, then God does not, not one who's all-powerful and who is good, it's too simplistic. The world is more complex than that. There can be multiple things going on. And Jesus is using this story to reason with us. 
to get us to look at the reality in the real world instead of being distracted by abstractions that we have in our own heads and in our own hearts. And so I just say to you, yeah, first he gives us the questions, so don't be afraid of the questions. But second, if you ask Jesus something, he may just tell you a story. And you may just have to sit with it and linger with him. You may just have to be prepared to humble yourself to receive what he has to say. And so I ask you, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to sit? Now, these parables are easy to dismiss. You can just go on with your life. Jesus allows people to do that. But to really learn what Jesus is saying, it takes some time to to sit with him and linger with him. Are you willing to do that? The third thing I notice about how Jesus tells this story, first, he gives us the question. He's not afraid of it. Second, he tells this story, which is not the way we typically do things. But the third thing I notice about how Jesus teaches here is that Jesus is not angry. Do you notice that? Jesus is just not angry here. He's talking about significant stuff, the harvest at the end of the age, the judgment at the end of all things, people being tossed into the fire, people being brought in his barn. He's not angry. I can get really angry about insignificant things. I did not ask my family for a list. I just thought of some on my own. But I was, we were turning back in, you know, chargers for a Chromebook to school or turning back in books that we were supposed to have for the end of school. And they're like, I don't know where. I'm like, how could you not know? It's a charger. Really? We haven't taken it overseas. I'm sure it's here someplace. Let's just, why would that make me so angry? I can get angry about insignificant things. Jesus is talking about significant stuff. He's not angry. Some of us hear things like this, and we imagine that God is like pitching a fit or that he's having a tantrum. Jesus is just telling a story. He's not yelling. He's not red-faced. He's not mean. He's not calling people names. He's not even demanding that you believe him. (laughs) He's just saying, he who has ears, let him hear. You can take it or you leave it. He seems to have this confident calmness. You know, whether you believe it or accept it or not, this is the way things are. This is the way it will be. But he's not angry. He's not yelling. I hear stories about preachers who come to the campus here at the University of North Alabama. Maybe they came to your campuses or street preachers. They're just screaming at folks, calling people prostitutes and whores when they walk by, right? Just screaming at people, red face, name calling, using scare tactics, right? You're going to burn in hell. You better turn or burn. Get sanctified or French fried. I mean, people, these guys are just going nuts, right? Jesus is not doing that. In fact, he doesn't really explain the parable to the crowd. He just tells the story and leaves it out there. And then when the disciples come to him, he's at home, right? He's back home. They come and ask him. He says, yes, yeah, sure, I'll tell you the one who sows is the good seed is the son of man. He who has ears, let him hear. 
Jesus just told this story to people and left it there as if to say, hey, do you want to hear more? And many people, in fact, most people just go back home. They don't want to hear more. But some of them keep thinking about it. And it keeps bothering them. And they come back to Jesus at the end of the day. Listen, maybe after you leave here, this story will be on your mind. You'll be back home. You'll be eating. You'll be thinking about it. That the Spirit will bring it back to you. And if that happens, I just encourage you, go to Jesus. Just pray. Just ask him, would you show me what this means? Would you show me if this is true? Would you show me if that preacher is right? It may even be in the middle of the night. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he didn't want anybody to know that he was coming to you. Maybe you'll come to you when nobody else knows. I encourage you to come to him and to linger with him. Some folks think not only Jesus is mad when they hear him talk about this topic, and he doesn't seem to be at all, but some folks also think that he's mad at the world. He's mad at the state of events. And therefore, we should really withdraw from the world and just talk about God's stuff and just do church kinds of things. But Jesus doesn't seem to be mad or encouraging us to abandon the world at all. Look at what he says. In verse 24, when he's telling the parable, he says that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. It's his field. And then who is the one who's sowing the good seed? It's, it's Jesus. It's the Son of Man. This is his world. We sang, this is my Father's world, right? This whole world belongs to Jesus. It is his. And he is throwing this good seed out. Well, what's the good seed? Verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. Jesus sends the children of the kingdom into the world. He scatters us. I hope that's a familiar term to you since we gather and scatter to see the kingdom come. He scatters his children into the world where the evil is. <laughs> right there beside it for us just to live right alongside evil. Why would he do that? Well, Jesus doesn't say why here. But earlier, before he started talking only in parables, back in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this description of what people follow him look like in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness. And he gets to the end of that description, and he just says in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13, to his followers, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why he scatters us into the world. That we would live lives that are different than the rest of the world, right there alongside of them. 
which he tells us in the Beatitudes sometimes is going to lead to them persecuting you, cursing you, but that we're still supposed to live that way right alongside evil so that some of the weeds see the fruit that he produces in our lives and give glory to the Father and come to the place that they say, I would rather live in that kingdom of light than the kingdom of darkness that I am now in. And as more and more people come into his kingdom, and as more and more people live life the way he designed it to be lived, then his kingdom comes more and more in this world. You know, it shouldn't surprise us if we are followers of Jesus, followers of the one who left the perfection of heaven to come to a broken and messed up world right where the evil is, in order to live right beside evil, in order to patiently endure the evil, in order to grapple with, to deal with evil, in order to bring light to the darkness, if we follow that person, then it would make sense that we would be people that he would send into the world for the same reason. Now, I do just want to give just a thought on who are these children of the kingdom and who are these children of the evil one. You know, we may think that children of the kingdom of God, it means that only the pious, only those who are the most holy and righteous, Listen, Jesus is just talking about those who let Jesus define what is right and wrong. That's all he's saying. Those who have come into my kingdom, those who have knelt to me as the king, those who acknowledge that I am king and lord of their life and that I define what is right and wrong and that I know the way the world is set up because I made it. It is those people who let Jesus define right and wrong. Those are the children of the kingdom. And the children of the evil one, sometimes we hear that one think, oh, that's got to be like devil worshipers or something. Well, not necessarily. Those are simply people who do not let Jesus define what is right and wrong for them. And Jesus said, I want these two types of people, those who let Jesus define what is right and wrong, and those who do not let Jesus define what is right and wrong for them, I want those people to just live side by side with one another. Now, some people, when they hear that, oh, Jesus is going to tell me how I should live my life, people think that's arrogant. Who is he to tell me how I should live? I don't know. More and more in this culture, I think we're going to have to say politely, respectfully, you know, who, who are you to make up what is right and wrong? How do you do that for yourself? What authority do you have to do that? All right? I think we need to ask that question gently, press people. I mean, I don't think it's arrogant of Jesus to do this. Not if he's the one who made all things and knows how they were meant to work. In fact, if he really did make all things and knows how they were meant to work and then he didn't tell us how to live life, that would be kind of mean, right? His telling us, how he created things to work in this world to define the safe path for us 
so that we can stay on the safe path. That, that's a kindness. It's not arrogance. He's not being mean. Everyone I know is trying to figure out life in this world. How to make sense of what we see on the news. How to make sense of what we see on Facebook or on social media. How does any of this make sense? And Jesus is here making sense of it all for us. And he does it by giving us this story. Well, let's quickly talk about what Jesus teaches. I know I've got four things there, but this was the bulk of what we talked about back in October, so I won't spend as much time about what Jesus teaches. We've already talked about a lot of it, and even we have this morning. But let me just mention four things he seems to be saying pretty clearly. Number one, he seems to be saying God made all things good. Right, We saw, verse 24, the field is his world, that he sowed good seeds, that this is all his, that God made all things good. That's number one. God made all things good. And secondly, Jesus seems to make the point that things are broken and messed up because, watch this now, because of our failure to submit to him as the king. Now, that's not what I wrote to begin with. At first, I put things are broken and messed up because of the devil, because of the evil one, right? Because he's the enemy that comes and sows the bad seeds in the field. And that's true. But the whole reason things are broken and messed up is because the evil one has not submitted to God, right? He has not allowed him to define how life should be lived in the world. He's saying that there's another way that you can live, a different way than how God defines, and so that's what the evil one, and those who follow the evil one or who are influenced or tempted by him are just those who do not submit to Jesus. They do not recognize the rule and reign of God in their lives, the one who created all things. So really, the reason why things are broken and messed up is because the devil, who's a fallen angel, and people have not submitted to God and lived life the way he designed it to be lived in the world. That's why things are broken and messed up. So God made all things good, number one. Second, things are broken and messed up because of our failure to submit to God. Now watch this. We're turning the corner. Number three, God permits good and evil to coexist in his world for a time. It's <laughs> the point of the parable, right? He's answering the logic. If evil exists, there must not be a good and all-powerful God. And Jesus is saying it's more complicated than that, right? Multiple things can be going on in the world. And you see it there in verses 28 to 30, right? That God permits good and evil to coexist in his world for a time because the laborers, right, they come, they say to the master, an enemy has, he says, an enemy has done this. So the servants say, then do you want us to go gather them? Like, do you want us to get up the weeds now? And in verse 29, the master says, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, let both grow together until the harvest. So God permits good and evil to coexist in his world for a time. Why not just go ahead and get rid of all the evil? Well, I ask that every day. <laughs> How long, Lord, are you going to let this go on? Why not just go ahead and root up the evil? Well, well Jesus says it's not good for the wheat. That it's not good for the wheat, those who do belong. But you see, some that look like weeds now, that are weeds, are going to become wheat. <laughs> They're going to become part of the kingdom. They're going to see this other way of living life and be drawn to it. 
And so to take up all the weeds at this point would deny some folks from coming to Jesus that he has planned for them to come to him. So it would destroy some of the wheat he talks about. In fact, Romans 2 talks about that, right? It talks about God's judgment. You deserve God's judgment, but he's not raining down judgment on you. And then he says, don't you know that that's God's kindness to you? And that his kindness and patience towards you should lead you to repentance. And there will be folks who will repent. So he's not pulling up the weeds now. Second, the the wheat, I mean, his people, we grow by overcoming obstacles. Man, if you weren't in Sunday school this morning, it was a great class. We're starting at 9. We talked about overcoming obstacles to grow in the Christian life. And that's one of the things that God uses in our lives. In fact, 1 Peter 1, down around verse 12, Peter writes that concerning our salvation that we've received this grace from God, that he's treated us better than we deserve, and that angels who have not sinned and fallen long to look into these things because in some measure they don't understand the grace of God like we do because they never sinned and fell and have actually gotten to taste and experience the grace of God. So the way it strengthens us as believers And since everything is for God's glory in some way, doing it this way must bring more glory to God. Romans 9 tends to to hint at that. So number three is God permits good and evil to coexist in his world for a time. One more, number four. One day God will make all things right. One day God will make all things right. Look at verse 41. The Son of Man will send his angels And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place. There will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, some of you, I know you hear things like this and you're like, okay, there it is. (laughs) That's what I hate. Some people get thrown in the fire and burned up and some people shine like the sun. I just have a problem with that. I don't like that. Listen, I don't like that either. I wish everyone would come into the kingdom of light. Some of us look at that and we think God is mean by doing that. But but let's just think about that. Let me just ask you a few questions. Let me reason with you. Think about just life in this world. (laughs) Those of us who have the means to do so just be honest, those of us who can because we have the money to do it will take our families out of places where there are lawbreakers in order to live in places where there aren't as many lawbreakers because we realize that we would rather live in a place where the law is not broken than to live in a place where it is broken all the time. That's true of us, right? Of course it is. Look at the Migration patterns, look at the way that we live. So for someone to say that it is mean to do that, it's not mean, it's wise. It's what any of us would do for our family if we have the means to do so, that we would move away from lawbreakers, that we would end the causes of sin and all who break the law and move to a place that is safer, where lawbreakers don't rule the day. 
So for God to create a kingdom like that is not mean. It is wise. It is what any of us would do if we had the power to do it. And notice that one day God will do that. One day God will make all things right. Do you hear what that means to answer the syllogism, right? It means that God is willing because he's going to do it. It means that God is able because he will one day do so. And until then, we live life in this world side by side with evil, patiently enduring evil, calling people into the light of the kingdom, showing the beauty of the kingdom by the way we live life in this world, (laughs) repenting when we don't live that way. So that even then in our fallenness and as we fall short, people see the grace and mercy of our God who allows us, even those of us who fall short, to continue to be in his family. All the while longing for Jesus to return and make all things right. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for meeting us in our questions, for raising the questions that we have. We are confused by evil in the world, and we wish that it would go away, yet we also see evil in our own hearts and so appreciate the grace and mercy that you extend to us but are so quick to ask for justice for others. Father, we confess we don't know the right way to structure the world. We submit to your design. We recognize life is more complicated than all one or all the other. And so we rest in your sovereignty and your omniscience. We bend the knee to you, knowing that you are willing and that you are able, and one day you will make all things right. And until that day, we ask that you would help us to live life in this world as you call us to do so. All for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.